If you turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. We come to a passage that is more commonly known as the transfiguration, the transfiguration or the transformation of Christ. It's a preview to His coming glory in the transfiguration that we see here. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. The Scriptures read, And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And they were coming down from the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will utter many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Let's bow together in prayer before we begin our study. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Lord, for your word, your precious word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So we ask, God, that you would bless this time, illumine our minds, and open the eyes of our heart, that we might see wonderful, great things from thy word. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's an article in Forbes magazine where a business consultant named Liz Ryan, she argues that companies should not be obsessed with having happy employees. Instead, she argues that employers should focus on helping employees connect to a greater mission. She goes on with the following example of a mission-driven person. 
She says, let's examine a person, or imagine a person, I should say, who's completely immersed in his or her work. We'll use the greatest violin maker in the world as an example. I don't know who makes the greatest violins in the world, but we'll imagine that it's an Italian violin maker named Franco. And that Franco has a studio where 15 or 20 f apprentices and journeymen violin makers work alongside of him, making the most exquisite violins in the world. Is he happy? He's alternatively ecstatic, frustrated, transported, confused, exhausted, and lost in the zone. He and his work are inextricable from one another. No one would say about him or his employees, they're happy. Instead, people in Franco's world, his town, would say, those guys live and breathe violins, and people around the world rejoice. For us, Christians and the Christian life is not a call to walk a path of comfort, of ease, or the pursuit of happy living, because happiness can come and go. Happiness can come and go depending upon how one is feeling a particular day or depending upon the circumstances in one's life. But that's what the world often pursues. They pursue happiness. In fact, in 2013, in a culture that was awash in happiness, David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist. He notes that during a three-month period on Amazon, there were a thousand books published just in one quarter on the subject of happiness. But the call for those who are Christians is not to be happy and to pursue happiness. It is to be a person who pursues the glory of God. It's a life that is immersed in the call of being a Christian with the singular goal that our desire is to bring honor, to bring glory to God. We're called in the scriptures to be living sacrifices according to the book of Romans. We're called to love God more than anything else, more than any other relationship in this world. We are called not to pursue money, not to pursue the things of this earth, but to set our mind on things above, not on things that are here on the earth. We are called to a life that may include much suffering, and that will include much suffering. We are called to a life that we saw last week of self-denial, of a willingness to be persecuted, of a willingness to even die for our faith as a martyr for Christ. Because we are sinners, though, it is often our desire to pursue a path that leads to the least amount of suffering that we can. And we often have an aversion to anything that is too hard, an aversion to anything that involves suffering, an aversion to anything that is too sacrificial or even inconvenient. And likewise, the same thing with the disciples. Disciples who are following Jesus, they completely believed Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet they didn't buy into his plan, a plan that would include suffering, a plan that would include the cross, a plan that would later include his resurrection. In the chapters prior to here, this chapter 9, Jesus had already begun weeding out those believers, or those, I should say, who were following him, 
out of the wrong motives. People had wanted to follow Jesus for all sorts of reasons. Tens of thousands of people that Jesus had fed at the feeding of the 5,000, and actually it was twenty to 30,000 people or so, they came, and he knew why they wanted to follow him. Not only did they get a free dinner, but they saw his miracles, and they wanted to make him king. They saw his healing power. They were fascinated by him. They wanted him to overthrow the, the, the Roman Empire. But Jesus confronted them, and he began to weed out those who were not truly following him for who he was. He wasn't going to overthrow Rome, but he was going to confront the religious rulers of that day. He was going to suffer injustice. He was going to die a horrible death, a torturous death, and then rise from the dead. We see this in the last chapter in Mark chapter 8, when Peter makes the correct and astounding declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, A plus for Peter. And then he turns around and then he rebukes Jesus. When Jesus says in Mark 8.31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Peter bought into the person of who Jesus was, but he rejected the plan of Jesus, that of suffering, that of rejection, that of being killed and rising from the dead, because that idea was outlandish, not only to Peter, but the rest of the disciples, because a Messiah who would be rejected, a Messiah who would be killed, would be no Messiah at all in their world plan. It was a bad idea in Peter's mind, and Peter to Peter, it probably sounded like fiction. It sounded like some sort of fantasy. It was a horrible plan. And so Peter rebuked Jesus, and Jesus turns right around and firmly rebukes Peter for not having his mind set on heavenly things, but having his mind set on earthly things. And even though he was rebuked, we find that the Peter and his disciples will continue to struggle over this plan that Jesus has of his suffering, of his death, of his resurrection. And so as we look at this passage related to the temptation, or to the transfiguration, we look at what transpires in this text. We see what Jesus does is he provides them with a vision a vision or an experience, I should say, of what is to come, that end goal, that end goal of the mission. It's like an Olympic coach, an Olympic coach who continually reminds those that he is training, the young athletes, of the dream of standing on that podium, the dream of winning, of seeing gold medalists, of seeing those who are victorious and remind them of all of the suffering that they will need to go through and all of the training and all of the hours so that they can compete at a level by which they will win. And so when Jesus is transfigured, he gives them that experience in which they will see the end goal that transcendent goal, the magnification and the glorification of Jesus, which will come at the transfiguration as well. And all of that sacrifice, the suffering, the pain, will all be worth it when they see the glory of Jesus. And so it is a preview. It is a preview of his glory in the coming future kingdom. But he underscores the idea that it will come after, after his suffering, after his death and his resurrection. And so we see first in verses 1 through 8, the transfiguration glory. 
Jesus was saying to them, he says in verse 1, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after his come in his, and with power. He whet their appetite for the future like a movie trailer would come out, and the incident is called the transfiguration as Jesus receives honor and glory from God the Father. And Peter writes about this. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter writes to the scattered believers who had scattered because of persecution. He writes to these believers in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 about his own testimony of this incident that is found here, of the transfiguration. And he says in 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. He received honor and glory from God the Father, Peter says. And he is referring to this incident called the transfiguration. We didn't make up any stories, Peter is saying. We don't testify by hearsay. We were eyewitnesses ourselves. And so let's look at what happened in Mark chapter 9 in closer detail. Verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. This was his inner circle. This was his inner circle. Those that were with him, they were with him when he raised Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 537. They were with him when he went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Later on, we'll see in Mark chapter 14. These were the three witnesses that Scripture would later require. Witnesses who would, uh, who would testify. In the Old Testament, there was a principle that was given. If you wanted to testify of something that was truthful, you needed two or three witnesses. And here were three and there, Jesus was transfigured before them. That word is the word metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. The word is used in Romans chapter 12 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 in reference to a Christian who changes, who becomes a Christian. When salvation happens, they have a change that occurs within them. But not only was he transfigured, it says that his garments were a blazing white. And Jesus revealed his complete glory, and Matthew and Luke add to that, saying that his face shone like the sun. It says that the disciples fell on their faces. And the testimony of Scripture tells us that there were two individuals that were there too. There was Moses and Elijah, and they were there too. The glorified bodies, perhaps receiving them early, don't know exactly what the, what the situation was, but Luke chapter 9.31 tells us that they were there as well. They were talking with Jesus. The scriptures tell us that they were talking with Jesus. Now, what were they talking about? Well, the book of Luke tells us what they were talking about. Luke chapter 9, verse 31, they were talking about his departure, they were talking about his death. They were talking about what was going to happen to him. 
And in this context, that's what it would have been the subject in Luke chapter 9. And Elijah appeared with them, verse 4, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What happens next is that Peter says something to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What in the world is Peter saying here? Why does he say, let's make three tabernacles? Now, he's talking about these tabernacles because during this time, we're six months out from Jesus' death on the cross. Six months out from Jesus' death on the cross is the month of Tishri. And in the month of Tishri, the Israelites celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. They celebrated the Feast of Booze. And that was a celebration in which they recognized and remembered the Exodus when Israel came out of Egypt. And they went into the desert. They lived in these tents. And in order to remember that, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. People built these little tents to stay in. And Peter was suggesting here that he would make three tabernacles. Now, the context also tells us in Luke 9.33 that as, he, as they were talking, what happened was in Luke chapter 9 that Moses and Elijah began to depart. They began to leave, and Peter, many times, he, of course here he was terrified. It says in verse 6, he didn't know what to say. And many times, like you and I, when we're afraid, when we're, when we're nervous about whatever it might be, and we don't know what to say, we blurt out what comes first to our minds, no matter what it might sound like. And here he says, why don't we make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, as they are leaving? Why does he say that? Well, obviously, he wants them to stay. He wants them to stay. Not only is this a time of celebrating during the Feast of Booths, which lasted a week. That was an entire week's celebration. But he wanted them to stay. He didn't want them to leave. I mean, of all of the people who would come and be with Jesus, Moses and Elijah were very, very large, significant feature, people in the Old Testament. This was Moses, the one to whom God gave the law. He was the foremost leader in Israel, the one to whom God spoke, the one to whom God entrusted with the commandments, the one who delivered the people out of Egypt. He was very, very highly regarded. The, the first five books of the Bible are called the, the books of uh, the law, the books of Moses, the Mosaic law. And there was Elijah as well. Not only was Moses the first judge who judged over Israel and the giver of the law through whom God gave the law, but there was Elijah. And Elijah continually decried sin and the lack of adherence to the law, the enforcer of the law, the one who prophesied and preached against sin in the nation, how they had departed from the law. The enforcer of the law so Peter, obviously, was thinking, I don't want these folks to leave. Don't leave. There are two people here who are going to come with Jesus to deliver our people. I want you to stay. And I think he wanted them to stay because his mind was still stuck on what? The plan, 
the plan that he had previously had, the plan that everyone had aside from Jesus, which was basically, let's, well, what would two better people would be with Jesus if we're going to establish the kingdom? And maybe it would be a short suffering or whatever it might be, but this suffering is not going to last long with Elijah and Moses here to lead the people along with Jesus. Stay. Don't leave. We'll make three-tenths for you. In cloud form, overshadowing them, and a voice came out saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Can you imagine that? Here's Peter blurting out whatever he so thinks. And God the Father says, listen to him. In other words, Peter, stop talking. Listen to him. Jesus and Moses and Elijah, they're talking about his suffering, his departure, his death. And here you are talking about making three tents. Not only was Jesus, you see, transfigured, but he received the highest commendation from God the Father himself. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Peter, just don't say anything. This is the person of Jesus. The authentication of his person, the authority that was granted to him, this is my beloved son. The endorsement by God himself, the glorification of Jesus, that they might see the future. This glorification is what Jesus will receive. And all at once, they look around and saw no one else except Jesus alone, verse 8 tells us. The preview of what is to come. The preview of what is to come. All is not lost. And that was, the, that was the purpose. So that they might see, even though they had been talking about all of this, this suffering, this death, their dreams would have disappeared in a Messiah that would have died. All was not hopeless. The kingdom and the glory would come just not in their plan. It would be in God's plan. And sometimes for us too, we need to be reminded of the future, the future glory, because so oftentimes our short-sightedness makes us live for the here and now. And we focus on our circumstances and we're so enveloped in our own suffering. We're so enveloped in our own problems that we fail to see that there's a bigger picture, that there's a bigger picture and the end goal of eternity of bringing glory to God in some way, shape, or form. We forget. We forget what the future holds. And this short-term suffering that we have in this life is going to pass. It's just a time in our lives. It's just a phase in our lives that we're what? Without a job or that we're sick or that we have these difficulties in whatever situation we were at. It's just a phase in our life. And God will come, just as we sing, Lord, haste the day when our faith will be sight, when the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll, the trump will resound and the Lord shall descend. And what will we say? It is well, even so, with my soul. God wanted to give them a preview of his coming glory, as well as granting to them that front row seat so that they would understand what was to come and that suffering comes before that glory. Verse 9, 
suffering comes before that glorification. And as they were coming down from the mountain, verse 9, it says, he gave them orders not to tell anyone that they, what they had seen. Another time, and many times Jesus would do this. Many times Jesus would tell people, do not say anything. Don't tell others about what has happened. Don't go and spread the word. He numerously, numerous times when he healed somebody, he'd tell them not to say anything but to give glory to God. One time he did tell somebody, but most of the time it was, don't say anything. Why? Not until the text says the Son of Man rose from the dead. There's nothing worse than a half story with an unbelievable cliffhanger. I mean, if the disciples had that much trouble, and they still will have trouble, as we'll see in the future, with believing Jesus when he talked about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection, you can imagine how many people, if they began to tell people this, would not even believe them, who hadn't spent any time with Jesus. Even then, though, the atonement for sin had not yet taken place. His death on the cross, his payment for sin had not yet taken place. The resurrection had not yet happened. And the resurrection is the key, is the key to the message of the gospel. It is the key to the Christian faith. It was the central message of the apostolic preaching in all of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the central message was that Jesus had arisen from the dead. It was the message of the resurrection. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he said, This Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. What were the religious leaders of that day disturbed about? In Acts chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And Luke notes in Acts 4.33, and with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to what? To the resurrection of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And Paul was, quote, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. This was the central message and had not happened yet. It was still six months out. We were in the month of Tishri, six months out before his death on the cross and his resurrection, which was to come. And so Jesus told them, don't say anything. There is no salvation apart from the central reality of if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And he commanded them not to say anything after his transfiguration because that resurrection had not yet taken place and the full message of the gospel would not yet have been complete. And unlike many of the others whom Jesus healed and he told them not to say anything, these disciples didn't say anything. It says in Luke 9.36, they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So this is what happened. When they were coming down, he was talking about these things. They seized upon that statement, verse 10, discussing with one another, verse 10, what rising from the dead meant. And their minds started churning. Because they were trying to think through the scriptures. They were trying to think through the scriptures and they asked him, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why is it that the scribes say that? And the reasoning comes from the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. It says, behold, 
I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Before a king would arrive, they would send a herald. They would send a herald who would proclaim that the king is coming, so whatever town they were coming to, they could clean up that town. They could fill in all the potholes. They could make way for the king and his entourage. They would be able to be prepared, and they would proclaim that the king is coming. Later on in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, they would identify this particular individual as Elijah the prophet. That's why these disciples asked that question. Disciples asked that question because they were thinking in the book of Malachi, there is going to be a forerunner, one who is going to be a forerunner who proclaimed the Messiah's coming, and uh, this forerunner is going to be Elijah the prophet. So they said, well, Elijah does come first, or Elijah is going to come first. Well, why, why does the scripture say that? Jesus says to them, well, Elijah does come first and restore all things, and yet how is it? So he answers their question and then asks them a question back. And yet, how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Now, if I were one of the disciples, I'll tell you, I would be just as confused as they often were. Disciples asked him that. Jesus said, well, Elijah has come. He turns to ask them how he could be the Messiah if he did not suffer in the Old Testament. And then he says in verse 13, I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. Elijah has indeed come. Now, who is he talking about? And why did he say this? Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it tells us, it is he who will go as a forerunner before him. Speaking of whom? Of John the Baptist, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient of the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke was referencing John the Baptist as one who would be in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He wasn't literally Elijah, but he was like Elijah, and they would be similar in terms of many things, not only their appearance, but in their power and their preaching, and John the Baptist would be the forerunner to Jesus. But even more than all of these things, they did to John the Baptist whatever they wished as it was written of him. He was rejected, he was imprisoned, he was decapitated by Herod. And so you see, Elijah was rejected, he was persecuted. John the Baptist was rejected, he was persecuted. And Jesus would be rejected, he would suffer and he would die. Now in the future, Elijah will come, Christ will return in glory. There is suffering before glory. There's always going to be this path. He was telling the disciples, glory will come. He had just shown them in the preview in the transfiguration, but there must be a valley before that in which he will suffer and die, and they will see that six months later on in his life. Ajith Fernando, in his book entitled The Call to Joy and Pain, he's a Christian leader from Sri Lanka who ministers to the urban poor, and he says this, The church in each culture has its own special challenges, theological blind spots that hinder Christians from growing to full maturity in Christ. 
I think one of the most serious theological blind spots in the Western church is a defective understanding of suffering. There seems to be a lot of reflection on how to avoid suffering and on what to do when we hurt. We have a lot of teaching about escape from suffering and therapy for suffering, but there is an inadequate teaching about the theology of suffering. The quote, good life, comfort, convenience, and a painless life have become necessities that people view as basic rights. If they do not have these, they think something has gone wrong. One of the results of this attitude, he writes, is a very severe restriction of spiritual growth, for God intends us to grow through trials. Jesus tells his disciples that they will see him suffer prior to his glorification. They will see him die on the cross prior to his glorification. And like that, Christians will suffer too for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of their testimony for Christ. And they will later on experience the glory that is to come. As in Acts 14.22 was preached, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Or Romans 8.17, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. And as the promise that Paul writes to young Timothy, who is a young pastor, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we understand that 1 Peter, when Peter writes to the believers, to the degree that we share in the sufferings of Christ, we keep on rejoicing so that all so at the revelation of his glory we may rejoice with exaltation. When we suffer for righteousness, when we suffer for being a Christian, when we suffer in this life because God brings about circumstances, it is God who wants us to be able to endure that suffering as he molds our character, as he molds our vision for the future. Because oftentimes suffering takes our eyes off of this world and sets our eyes upon the next. That we might strive for things that are eternal, things of eternal value, that we might have a vision of future glory and not simply be satisfied with whatever comforts and glory that we find here in this life and in this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks, Lord, for your word, which helps us, O oh Father, to see that there is a future hope, a future glory, future reward for those who are your children. And Father, that path may be a path of suffering by which you bring us through, by which you test us, by which trials come into our lives. And we pray, God, when you test us, may we be found true and faithful to you. We pray, God, that you would help us to fix our eyes on the things that are of true value the goal, the prize, that we might run this race of our life in order to win. For your glory and for your name's sake, amen.